Back in 1991, there was a movie that came out that is called Grand Canyon. Now, I've never actually seen the movie, and based on the ratings and the reviews, uh, I don't actually plan to see it, nor do I endorse the movie. But there is one particular scene in the movie that I think is particularly thought-provoking. And here's what the scene is. There's an attorney in Los Angeles who is driving through the city late at night, and he gets lost, and unfortunately his car breaks down in a really bad neighborhood. He, he calls a tow truck, um, but before the truck is able to arrive, a group of gangsters surrounds his car and begins to shout very serious threats at him. Now, just in time, the tow truck arrives, and the driver gets out and begins to hook up the car to the back of the tow truck. But the gangsters really are not too happy about this. They're protesting because they have some other plans they want to carry out against the driver uh, of the car and against the car itself. And then the tow truck driver uh, identifies who the main leader is of that gang there and in a very climactic moment pulls that gang leader aside and says this to him. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And I think this is a mentality that really, if we look at our world around us, look at our lives and are honest with ourselves, we probably share that same sentiment. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. You may use different grammar that's a little bit more accurate, but still, our world is not quite the way that we think it should be. I mean, you look at your job. You, you might work hard. You try to treat others around you well. You operate with integrity. But even still, you may get passed over for that job promotion that you want. You may get laid off. Your boss may be a jerk. Or you may invest so much time and energy into a special project, and then it just fizzles. The world ain't the way it's supposed to be, is it? You look at your relationships with those around you, and you, you think about the sting of insults that you receive sometimes. You think of the, just the cancerous effect that gossip and grudges can have on you. Or you think about relationships that really should be life-giving and full of love, but instead they're full of pain and strife. It ain't the way it's supposed to be. Or you think about how around the world there are 147 million children living as orphans. You see young girls who are caught up in sex trafficking. You see countless men who are addicted to pornography. You see how cancer and Alzheimer's and other diseases ravage people's lives. And you can't help but think this ain't the way it's supposed to be. Or even look at the everyday frustrations that we deal with. Broken washing machines. Email that gets hacked. Rude drivers all around us. Bullies at school. The world ain't the way it's supposed to be, is it? At least that's the feeling that we oftentimes have. And I think it's easy to wonder, okay, God, if you really created the world, why is it so messed up these days? Well, that's a very relevant question. And I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to talk about that question today as we conclude our series called The Fall. It's a three-week series where we're walking through Genesis chapter 3. And the series is really meant to lead us up to Easter to help us understand the bad news of the brokenness of ourselves and of this world in order to more fully understand the good news of Christ's victory through his death and resurrection. And through this series, we're not merely walking through a passage of Scripture. We're also looking at a paradigm uh, that we call this downward slope or this downward spiral of how sin works itself out in our lives. 
It starts with deception. And after a person is deceived away from God's truth, they begin to doubt God. And those doubts bring about illegitimate desires, which brings about sin. After that sin, you begin to feel some shame uh, about the sin. With that shame, you want to cover it up. You feel fearful. And then you start to scramble because you want to hide. You don't want other people to see you in your, in your shame, your sin, and your fear. And today we're looking at the final three parts of this downward spiral, the shame, the fear, and the scrambling. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dig into Genesis chapter 3. Our Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. Uh, we all recognize that we have certainly sinned against you, Lord. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Lord, um, we all in various ways have turned against you, but we thank you for your grace. And I pray now as we open the Scripture, open the Genesis 3, that you will give us fresh insight and wisdom into understanding why the world is the way it is currently but also how you are victorious over it. But in the meantime, Lord, as we await your final victory over sin and death and Satan, Lord, give us clarity in how you are calling us to live here and now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Genesis 3, 1 through 13 to set the context for our time together this morning. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here in this passage, we have what could be called the aftermath of sin. Now, I think it would be a very rude awakening for Adam and Eve to experience what just took place right here. Because they thought by eating this forbidden fruit, they were going to get something really good, get this tremendous wisdom that would help them take a major step forward. But instead, you look at the first realization they came to after they ate that fruit. They looked down, looked at each other, and realized we're naked. Certainly not the type of wisdom and knowledge they were bargaining for here. And if you ever had those dreams where you're on a school bus or you're at work and suddenly you realize you forgot your shoes or you forgot your pants or you forgot something worse, I mean, it's kind of one of those bad dreams. It's amazing how a significant percentage of the people have had those dreams at times. It's a bad dream. And thankfully, we wake up typically and realize, you know what? Thankfully, real life is not as bad as those dreams are. We, we, we don't typically forget our shoes or our pants or whatever. 
But for Adam and Eve, I imagine it kind of felt like that. But it was a dream that they could not wake up from. Really, what had happened when they ate from that fruit, from that tree they shouldn't have eaten from, they'd opened the door to a nightmare they could not escape. And what happened as a result was shame. Back in chapter 2, verse 25, we saw that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame even though they were naked. This was a a perfect picture of, of childlike innocence. I mean, who else besides little children run around naked and are just so full of joy and so happy and completely unashamed? I mean, children are the only ones I know who, who do that. But this is a picture of the innocence and the purity of Adam and Eve at that point before sin entered the world. That they too could be naked and unashamed. But then you look at what happened after they ate uh, from, that, from that forbidden tree and they realized that they were naked. They felt shame. Previously, there had been uninhibited openness and intimacy, and now only shame. And so uh, they did what is really quite natural when you feel shame. They tried to cover themselves up. It says that they, made, they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. As I said, shame and trying to cover up for yourself really do oftentimes go together because you don't want other people to see you in your shame. You think, for instance, a very uh, mundane example, one that we've probably all experienced. Say you're walking along, going up a flight of stairs with your arms full. You don't realize there's one more step. And you trip over and fall to your knees, and what was in your arms just scatters all around. What's your first reaction when that happens? You might lean over to pick the stuff up, but right about that same time, you're going to be looking around to see if anyone else noticed you. And if no one else noticed you, you're probably going to feel this wave of relief, like, whew, that was embarrassing. Glad no one saw it. But then if someone did see you, you're probably just going to turn red. You're going to smile kind of sheepishly. You may actually look away because um, you're, you're embarrassed. And so you try to avoid eye contact. You may make some joke to try to divert attention from yourself. But that's what we feel. It's just this little tinge of embarrassment or shame. And, and we prefer that no one sees us in that shame. Now the reality is, when you look at the world around us, so many people are walking through life with a significant major dark cloud of shame hanging over them. They don't want people to see it, but it's still there. It's still influencing the way that they are living and the way they're acting, the way they're thinking. It may be shame from bad decisions they made at one time or mistakes or, or perhaps missed opportunities they wish they could have capitalized on, but they didn't. They feel shame because of it. It could be shame um, because um, they don't like the way they look. They don't like the way they speak. They don't, they, they're ashamed of their family. I mean, it could be shame from any number of different things, but the reality is that when people feel shame, that they want to cover up. They don't want other people to see them in that shame. They feel fear because they're worried that someone might see that shame and look down on them for it. And that fear is what we see manifested in Adam and Eve when they realize in their shame that they are naked, that they did something they shouldn't have done. God, God apparently has this, uh, this routine back then in the Garden of Eden to take on some sort of physical form and at times during the day to go on a walk through the garden and to have fellowship with Adam and Eve. And I would imagine typically Adam and Eve look forward to that time when they hear God coming through the garden that they would run with joy to, to meet with God, to be with him, just to spend time with him, just like a little child. When they hear the door open for mom and dad, or mom or dad coming home from work, the child runs to the door to greet them with joy. Imagine Adam and Eve were typically that way. 
But here in this time, they were not that way. Instead, they were hiding from God. God said to them, where are you? Now, I fully believe that God knew exactly where they were. But there's a question to try to draw them out. Adam responded, verse 10, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so, so he's, he's just coming around saying, you know what, I was afraid, so he's hiding. And that's what we oftentimes do when we feel shame. We're afraid, so we try to hide. And um, typically, when you look at shame and fear and sin that can be in our lives, really every option that we have for what we do with it boils down to two main options. On one hand, we could take that shame and that fear and that sin to God. Find grace, find mercy, find healing. Or on the other hand, we could try to hide. We could, we could try to bury that, that shame and that fear and pretend like it's not there because we don't want others to see it. We don't want God to see it. We, we want to pretend like it's not really there. But it's still there. And what happens in those times is that a wall goes up between us and God and a wall goes up between us and other people too because we're trying to keep people out. We don't want people to see the ugliness that we see in ourselves. That's what shame does. It builds that fear. And as a result, the, the shame and the fear lead to what is called scrambling. Now, that's not a technical term. It's not a biblical term. But it's what we observe going on here. They've already begun to scramble. And what scrambling is is trying to cover up for yourself to try to avoid people looking down on you, to try to avoid negative consequences, to try to make yourself look better. Scrambling is exactly what Adam and Eve are doing here. And they've already covered themselves up with fig leaves, which is a bit of a joke because fig leaves are, are decent-sized leaves, but still, they don't really make great clothing. They've already been hiding from God. That's another form of scrambling. But listen to the conversation that takes place next, beginning in verse 11. God says to Adam and Eve, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You see what's going on here? God directly asked Adam, Did you eat fruit from that tree? And what did Adam do? I mean... He basically admitted, yes, I did. But then he passes the blame off, saying, hey, Eve gave me the food. It wasn't my idea. I was just standing here innocently. And she just gave me the food. She tempted me. It's not my fault. And, and besides God, it wasn't even my idea to put Eve here in the first place. You were the one who created, created her. God, it's your fault. It's blaming. It's passing the responsibility on to others rather than taking it for ourselves. And now look what Eve does. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You see, once again, you have a person who's feeling shame and fear, and they're not, holding, they're not bearing up to the responsibility that they need to. She's passing the blame on the serpent, Satan. And this is so common. I mean, it's just instinctual for many of us just to try to cover up, to pass the blame off to someone else because we don't want to deal with the negative consequences or with the perceptions of other people when they see us in our shame and our fear and our sin. And we need to recognize scrambling for what it is. There are some forms of scrambling that are certainly more socially acceptable than other forms, but even still, it's still scrambling. It's still trying to hide. And, and I mean, I just want to list a few different ways that scrambling may look, even though there are thousands of different nuances of what scrambling might look like. One obvious form that we've already talked about is, is simply passing the blame. 
It's a refusal to accept responsibility. That is scrambling. You're trying to cover up for yourself. Another common form is that when someone asks you a question that is a bit convicting, you bend the truth. You tell a little lie to try to cover up for yourself to avoid being caught and to avoid that shame of admitting a wrongdoing. Or other forms of scrambling um, are, include gossip and spreading dirt on people because what that's covering up is some sort of insecurity inside of you where you, for some reason or another, feel like by, by tearing others down through gossip and, and, and spreading dirt on them, you're somehow going to build yourself up. It's messed up thinking, but it's very common. It's easy to do. I mean, there are other forms of scrambling, too. There's escapism to try to hide from um, just the challenges and difficulties of this world. Escapism may take the form of alcoholism, drug abuse, um, getting immersed in hobbies or in work, um, perhaps things like shopping. Shopaholics oftentimes are trying to cover up something inside of them, trying to fill a need that only God can fill. Another form of, of scrambling is emotional withdrawal from those who are close to you because you don't want others to get close to you because they might see a part of you that you're embarrassed by. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, but it's still a form of withdrawal and hiding, is talking incessantly. Sometimes people try to cover up from themselves just by talk, talk, talking all the time, and they think if I talk enough, it'll keep people from really seeing the ugliness of what, what I'm experiencing. And they, they change the subject whenever anything personal comes up. There are all kinds of forms of scrambling, but we need to recognize it for what it is. It's scrambling. It's trying to cover up for ourselves to make ourselves look better in the eyes of others. I'm going to share uh, an instance of scrambling in my own life. It's something that um, until the 8 o'clock service this morning, I'd only shared with one other person I know of, and it wasn't my wife. Um, she's kind of like giving me a funny look. Um, Maybe I've shared it with her. Who knows? The only person I'd shared it with so far was Heidi, our administrative assistant, on Friday because she brought in a handful of Hershey's Kisses she'd brought, bought when she was at the store and plopped them on my desk because she knows I like sweets. I like sweets. My, my best line of defense is simply not to buy them, so I rarely buy sweets. But sometimes I manage to come into contact with a significant amount of, of candy. It just kind of happens sometimes. People give it to me. It's... Anyway, it, I come into contact with it, and here's what ends up happening. I'm sitting here working at my desk, bag of candy over here, a pile of candy over here, and I'm sitting here working, work a little bit more, grab another piece of candy, work a little bit more, and end up with this massive pile of candy wrappers there. Now, what do you do with them? Well, a few years ago, um, when I started here at the church, I, someone literally gave me a, can, a bag of candy after Halloween, and so I was just doing that thing, eating the candy, put a massive pile of wrappers in the trash can. And someone found that, that pile of wrappers in there, and I don't think I've heard the end of it yet. But I kind of, it, it, it kind of brought this bit of insecurity inside of me um, that made me kind of sensitive to, I don't want people to look at me in a strange way because I eat a whole bunch of candy sometimes. Um, and so here's the scrambling. Um, the scrambling is what I do now when I find I have a massive pile of candy wrappers. It's not frequently, but it happens sometimes. Um, what I do, rather than putting them all in my trash can, I'll put some in there. But I'll put some in some other trash cans around the church. 
Now, I don't put them in Pastor David's trash can. I don't try to frame someone else for it. I just put them in these generic trash cans where anyone might use that trash can. I mean, it's funny. Um, it is. Um, I mean, it's, Shelly's kind of like getting a tear out of her eye right now from laughing at me. But it's reality. It's scrambling. I mean, it, it's, it, it sounds pretty innocent. But in reality, it does reveal something deeper of this, a bit of insecurity or sensitivity and, and perhaps a lack of self-control at times as well. That's why I try not to buy this stuff in the first place. But even so, it's scrambling. And we all have it in our lives. And what ends up happening in our world is that you have pretty much everyone scrambling to varying degrees in various ways. And you have people scrambling, bouncing off other people scrambling. You end up with a lot of damage and pain in the process. I mean, it's oftentimes said that hurting people hurt people. And when we're scrambling, trying to cover up for ourselves, even at the expense of others, it's going to cause a lot of pain. So that's the source. A lot of the pain and challenges and hardship in our world is people scrambling, looking out only for themselves, rather than just living in the light, walking in the truth, and allowing God to bring healing to the shame and the fear that we feel and experience. So, so we have shame from sin, we have fear from that, and then that leads to scrambling. Now, this isn't the end of Genesis chapter 3. I want to also look not only at, at this downward spiral of sin in our lives, I want to look at what God's response is to all of this, what God's response is. Um, really, God's response here is cursing. And you may be thinking, all right, I'm in good company here because I sometimes curse when things go bad. And, well, God does it too. That's, that's, I'm in good company here. We understand that God's cursing is a little bit different than our cursing that we're maybe thinking about. Our cursing sometimes includes um, muttering words that should not be muttered. Cussing. This is not the type of cursing that God is doing here. God's cursing is pronouncing judgment, pronouncing a change in the way that things are going to operate in this world from that point forward. Now let's look at what this cursing is all about here. Picking up in verse 14, this is in response after Eve said, you know, the serpent deceived me. He made me do it. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And so this is a curse pronounced literally on Satan. We need to understand that there is some, some symbolic imagery going on here because even though it's addressing a serpent, Satan has been working through the serpent. It's not saying snakes eat dirt and that they once had legs and now they aren't going to have legs. They're just going to crawl on their bellies. That's not what it's saying here. It's symbolic language that's quite common throughout the Old Testament that when it says that people are, are going to crawl on their bellies and eat dust or eat dirt, it's a sign of humiliation. And so God is saying to Satan, Satan, because you have done this, you are going to be humiliated. We'll get back to that point in a minute. Um, God also, this curse extends to the realm of, of humans. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And so if you're a woman who's ever given birth and experienced pain in that, you can thank Eve for your pain in childbirth. That was one of the consequences. Also, there's marital strife, which is still rampant in today's world. It says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
In order to understand what's going on there behind that idea of your desire will be for your husband, I invite you to flip over to uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. There is the same word used in another uh, similar context. There God is speaking to a man named Cain, who is one of, Adam, one of Adam and Eve's children. And Cain is dealing with some challenges here. And God says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So it's saying sin desires to have you. Sin desires to have you. It desires to control you, to master you, to turn your life upside down. And so when you go back to um, back here to verse 16, when it says to Eve that your desire will be for your husband, it's talking about this desire to rule, to be the master, to be in control of what's taking place. So, so rather than humble teamwork together in marriage, husbands and wives now are going to be battling for control, battling for rule in that marriage. They're going to assert their selfish wills, and it's going to be strife rather than peace and harmony and teamwork. It's one of the consequences of the fall of humanity and of sin entering the world. Next, God says uh, to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So we see here that work is frustrated as well. If you experience frustrations in your work, it's, those frustrations descend from this curse on work. You see, the way the world operates fundamentally changed in many different ways as a result of sin entering the world. That's a part of the explanation of why the world is broken in the way it is now. Now, God's response to all this was not simply cursing. There was also grace at work as well. Look with me to verse 15 of chapter 3. God, here he's still speaking to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So he's talking about animosity between Satan and between humans. And ultimately, out of humans, specifically out of the woman we know as Mary 2,000 years ago, came Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This Genesis 3.15 is the first prediction of the coming Messiah to deliver people from sin, from death, and from Satan. So God is foretelling that one time, sometime in the future there will be a deliverer who will come and he will crush Satan's head. Now, Jesus has already won the victory through his death and resurrection. And when Jesus returns, the victory will be enforced and Satan will finally be crushed once and for all. There's also grace over in verse 21 of chapter 3. You remember, Adam and Eve had made some clothes out of fig leaves, but fig leaves don't make great clothes. Um, but listen to what God does. He says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I mean, what tremendous grace. I mean, it's this personal care for Adam and Eve, giving them clothing that will just be more rugged and more durable than their leaves. So he's showing grace to them. I even think the reality of brokenness and pain that God allows to remain in this world is also a sign of grace. Now, you may be thinking, what sort of messed up thinking is that? How is pain and suffering a form of grace? 
Well, let me read you from C.S. Lewis, a Christian author from the mid-1900s. And I think this comes from a book that he wrote called The Problem of Pain. I think it helps explain why pain can be a good thing. He says, We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasures. So C.S. Lewis is saying that, um, that we can ignore sin in our lives. We can even ignore good things and blessings and pleasures. They don't necessarily get our attention and draw us back to God. He says, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God, God works through pain and challenges and hardships and suffering to draw us back to himself, to show us that, that this world is not all there is, to help us from getting too satisfied with the way things are now so that we, because if we're too satisfied with those things, we're not going to seek him. If you listen to people's testimonies of how they came to know Christ or how they got serious in their walk with God, so much of the time, they point to hardships or challenges or heartache or emptiness. They were catalysts drawing them back to God. That's how God so often works. I encourage you, come back next Sunday to the Easter service. You're going to hear some really cool stories from people right here at Freedens. And one of the things I found out as we were taught, preparing for this is that every one of these stories of how people came to know Christ and got serious in their walk with God, they all had somewhere in their challenges or heartaches or emptiness that only God could fulfill. And so really, the pain, the suffering, the challenges, it's a blessing, in a sense, to drive us back to God. Now, I think there's still a legitimate question to ask at times of why so much suffering? Why so much pain? But still, you have to trace it back to Genesis chapter 3 and the brokenness of this world. Now, today we're coming to the end of this particular series even though, in reality, we're going to be talking about topics about sin and Jesus' victory over sin. I mean, as long as we're on this earth and probably for eternity to a degree. But I want to talk now about how do we apply the topics we've been discussing in this series. How do we apply them? And one of the applications I want us to make is a way that we understand the big picture of really history of the world. I think you could summarize the big picture in four words. You have creation, Fall, redemption, and restoration. That's a picture of everything that's taking place from Genesis to Revelation. If creation, God created the world to be good. But then there was the fall. Sin entered the world. The curse came. Things began to fall apart. That's why the world is broken the way it is now. Then Jesus came to bring redemption. We can begin to experience that redemption, that renewal, even here in this lifetime. And then one day when Jesus returns, there will be a restoration of all things, and we look forward to that day. But we need to understand that big picture that at one point in history, sin entered the world and things fell apart. And in my mind, if, if something got messed up after it was created, you can't necessarily blame the creator for why it's messed up. If something got messed up after it was created, you can't necessarily blame the creator. Let me give you an example. Last June, Shelly and I bought a van uh, for our family. Uh, we had outgrown um, our vehicles in terms of our, our, our ex expanding family, so we bought a van. 
And this, I mean, it looks like a very nice van, doesn't it? I mean, it's serving us well. We like it. Um, but when this van was very young, it was specifically 3,000 miles on it before we had it, it was in a moderate accident. There's a picture of it before we had it when it was in an accident. I mean, the airbag went off. It evidently hit something pretty hard. They had to replace a lot of different parts up there. I had a mechanic look at it. He said, you know what? Everything checks out. It looks good. But one of the things I recognize is that if this van develops squeaks, 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 squeaks and creaks, if it begins to have rattles and stuff, I can't automatically go back and say Dodge created an inferior product. I mean, it already has squeaks and creaks and probably some queaks and all kinds of other strange things, too. It already has these things. And it makes me wonder, okay, how much of that is attributable to the car accident it was in? And how much of it was just, that's the way vans are. That's the way Dodge designed it. Maybe Dodge should have made it a little bit of a stiffer frame. But I can't automatically just go back and say Dodge created an inferior product that squeaks and all this stuff. Or if the doors stop operating correctly or if the bumper doesn't align quite right. I can't automatically go back and say it was created with inferiority because it's been an accident that messed it up since then. Now, thankfully, it's running really well for us. We've got a great deal on it. We're very thankful to have it. But that's the reality of what happens when you have something that was in an accident early on is that you can't go back and automatically blame the creator. It's really the same with our universe. It was created good, and then something bad entered. Things fell apart. And you may still be wondering, okay, why does it have to be like this? Couldn't have God created the universe in a way where we wouldn't have this pain, wouldn't have sin? <laughs> a lot of people have discussed this down through the years. It's still not an easy question, but um, back in the 400s, uh, like 400 AD, there was a, a theologian and church leader named Augustine. And he formulated, based on Scripture and based on reason, an understanding of how could the universe be like this? Why did God create the universe to allow for sin and rebellion? And more recently, a Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga summarized Augustine's uh, teaching on this. I want to read you the summary. Plantinga writes, At bottom, Augustine says, It's that God can create a more perfect universe by permitting evil. So he's saying the universe is really better if it permits evil than if it doesn't permit evil. He says a really top-notch universe requires the existence of free rational moral agents. And some of the free creatures he created went wrong. But the universe with the free creatures it contains and the evil they commit is better than it would have been had it contained neither free creatures nor this evil. Now, that's, that's pretty deep. You have to kind of get your mind around it. But basically what it's saying is that God did not want to create robots or puppets. He wanted us to freely choose to love him to worship him, to follow him, to serve him. And we cannot freely make that choice if we are robots or puppets. He had to give us a freedom to choose to follow him or to not. Adam and Eve chose not to. Every one of us since then has chosen not to at times. And the consequence of that is that the world is broken. And I think that's a helpful explanation for why things are the way they are today. Now, that was the first uh, application point from the series. Understand the big picture of the creation, the fall, the redemption, the restoration. The second application point 
is that we need to diagnose in our own lives that downward spiral when it occurs. Diagnose that in our own lives because we all have sin. We all have shame. We all have fear. We all have scrambling. Diagnose what's going on in those situations. I think the best way to diagnose it and understand it and remedy it is to look at the sin, uh, the shame, the fear, the scrambling. I mean, those are things that are easier to identify. And when we identify those things in our lives, to begin to work backwards from there to then look at, okay, what's the deception, the doubt, the desire that's leading down this spiral? Let me just give you one example. Say, for example, that when you're asked straightforward questions that you find somewhat convicting, that you instinctively tend to lie or at least to somewhat bend the truth in order to cover up from yourselves. That's scrambling. Okay, you work backwards a little bit. Okay, what, why am I feeling shame or fear um, when it com- that causes me to, to, to tell a lie rather than tell the truth? Well, okay, maybe you identify I'm a people pleaser. I, I care so much about the, the opinions of others, and I'm scared that if I share the truth, that others are going to look down on me and think less of me. Okay, so you've, identif- you've gone backwards from the scrambling of the lie to the shame and the fear. Okay, go back a little bit farther and ask the question, okay, what's, what's the deception that I am believing that causes me to think that other people's opinions matter so much? Why am I a people pleaser? Well, perhaps it's that you were deceived into thinking that, that other people's opinions of you are of greater value than the truth or of greater value than what God thinks of you. That would be a deception that leads to people-pleasing, that leads to scrambling. And then that deception of thinking that other people's value of us um, or other people's opinion of us represents a, a good measure of our value, that leads to doubts about, does God really care for me? Does God's opinion really matter for me? Do other people really care for me? And so we need to go down that road of just understanding prayerfully, God What's going on here? Why am I acting like this? Why am I scrambling? Why do I feel this fear and shame? And then once we gain an understanding of it, begin to apply biblical truths there, the gospel truths, to help remedy it. For instance, in this particular case, it might be applying things like Jeremiah 31, about God loves us with an everlasting love. Romans 8.1, that if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. So you don't have to fear other people because God's opinion is what matters most. Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor, says this. He says, Somehow we fail to grasp that God's acceptance makes anyone else's rejection no more devastating than a misplaced dollar would be to a millionaire. We foolishly believe that other people's acceptance represents a legitimate measure of our value. That's biblical gospel truth that you could apply to this situation if you find that you are a people pleaser to remind yourself that, you know what? It's God's opinion that matters. Other people's value of me doesn't make that big of a difference if I recognize and internalize God's love for me. And so that's just an example of applying uh, knowledge of this downward spiral to our lives to help us draw closer to Christ. Now back here in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that, that there is sin uh, and then there is cursing of the world. There is still grace here. Now listen to what happens in verses 23 and 24. So the Lord God banished Adam from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So what we see here is that Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden and no longer had access to the tree of life. And you know what? We still experience that same thing today. We know we're certainly not in paradise today, are we? We don't have access to the tree of life anymore that, that nourishes us deeply and richly. But we look ahead to that time when everything is restored, when Jesus comes back to finally instill his ultimate victory. I want to flip to the opposite end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Listen to what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back and restores all things. The Apostle John writes in this vision that he sees, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now jump over to chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. So you see the tree of life will one day again be ours to partake from. This tree of life will be bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. See, the curse still rules now. We still feel the effects of it now. But one day, there will be no more curse. God will wipe away all the tears, all the mourning, all the sin, all the shame, all the fear will be gone. And we'll be standing in the presence of God. I'm looking forward to that day, and I hope you are too. I encourage you to come back next week as we celebrate the victory of Christ on Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are victorious. And we thank you that you're willing to pass that victory on to us. And I pray that you will help us between now and in this day that we anticipate when everything will be restored. Lord, we pray that you'll give us perseverance between now and then that you will give us the grace that we need to follow you faithfully. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you and not get so caught up in the challenges of this world that we get discouraged and downtrodden, but that we will remember that you are victorious and that we will live with freedom, with confidence, and with life, not with shame, with fear, or with condemnation. For we know that in Christ there is no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.